we are in our series, What God Says About Me. This is part five. You are, whether you know it or not, you're dead. You're dead to sin. And that is uh, a phrase, a sentence that has to be unpacked probably for the next few weeks. Okay, And so uh, today will be the start of that. By the end of the day, I'll just go ahead and tell you, you may have more questions than I've given you answers to. That's not because uh, what I'm going to say is confusing, but because what I say today, the groundwork I lay today will frankly just spark many more questions, hopefully, in your heart and in your mind. What we say today should cause you to say, well, what about this? Well, what about this? And when you think about your own heart and your own life, you should say, well, okay, uh, I'll choose to believe that by faith, but then I also, I think I believe this about me. This seems to be true. My experience is this. And you're going to be trying to figure out all of that. Just hold on and don't miss the next couple of weeks because some of the answers won't be today. Some of the answers have to be saved for another day. So today, in a sense, is a to-be-continued day right from the start. Uh, at the end of Romans, because this series, we've kind of been walking through Romans 5, 6, 7, Paul's argument on sin and our salvation and how we are to view ourselves uh, we've been we've been tracking through the Apostle Paul's argument. And he's said to us a few few things that uh, are worth reminding us. At first, we found out that we are sinners. Before we come to Christ, we, we have to know the hard truth that we are sinners and we are in need of salvation. And so we had to get that message in there. But the but the mass intent of this series wasn't to focus on us before Christ, but to focus on us now that we are in Christ. What does God say about me now that I am in Christ? And the first week we talked about how we are loved. The next week we said that we are saints. How can God love us to the degree that he can call us saints? We talked about how that theoretically and theologically plays out, Romans 5. Last week we, we titled the sermon, I am secure. I am secure. That no matter what, if you are in Christ... You are secure, wholly and completely, because your salvation is not dependent on you. It is dependent wholly and completely on the work of Jesus, and therefore it cannot fail. It cannot fall short. You are secure. The weight is off of you for maintaining something you never earned to begin with. Amen? If you missed that message, you want to go back and listen to it online. The CDs, I were told, had a little kink, so they're going to retape the CDs. Last week's sermon on that message, I Am Secure, will be out next week with this one as well. By the way, CDs are free in the, uh, in the orange room now. We are secure. Your salvation is not dependent on you maintaining good works before your God. That didn't gain you anything before a holy God. We were always going to fall short, and he saved us anyway. That's what Romans 5 says. And so if he saved us anyway, when we were so far from him, how much more now that we are children can he deal with us tripping and falling on our face? His love, his love was just simply demonstrated. He was, he was giving us a sample or a taste of his love when he died on the cross for us. And now that we are in Christ, his love is lavished upon us. Paul says in Romans 5 that the Holy Spirit living in us has shed abroad. It's a picture of the blood of Jesus being shed abroad in our heart, equated, Paul says, to the love of God. That it's a flood in our hearts now as Christians. That's the truth. We are loved. We are saints. We are secure. Today, I want to I move into Romans 6. 
that we are dead to sin. And I'm going to read the first 11 verses here to lay the groundwork for what we're going to say. Romans 6 verse 1 says this, What shall we say then? Coming off of Romans 5. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? You remember what he said at the end of, at the end of 5? He, he had made such a strong case for the power of Jesus being your security. The power of the cross being your security. The fact that your inheritance comes from your rebirth. That our, our legacy, our lineage goes all the way back now, not to the first Adam, but to the second Adam, to the last Adam, to Jesus himself. The fact that we are in Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. All those realities come together at the end of Romans 5. You should, be, you should be thinking to yourself, well, I could pretty much live however I want to live if it's that good of news. And in our humanity, we're tempted to think that way. But Paul comes in Romans 6 and he, he assumes that that will be where we go. It, it's almost as if I think that that's where he's been driving us the whole time in Romans chapter 5 that the love of God should so overwhelm you that you could almost say you could do whatever now. But he's quick to come behind that in Romans chapter 6 and say, not so fast. Uh, that would actually be a misconception. It would actually be a sheer impossibility. Here's why. Verse 2. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin? There's our phrase for the day. Still live in it. Now, as we continue down to verse 11, here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice how morbid this passage sounds. I want you to notice how many times he uses words like death, dying, crucifixion. And if you want to, it might be helpful to you to take a little pencil or maybe a pen and just check mark in your Bible all these spots, underline all these places in the next 11 verses where he is going to make it absolutely clear to us in an answer. Can we just live however we want to live? If God's love is that good, he's going to say, no, that's impossible because you have died to sin. And he's going to say that over and over and over and over and over again. Watch verse three. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into Death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in a newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with or made powerless so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has master over you. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul uses this passage as an argument for the question that might be in your mind at the end of chapter 5. Can I just live however I want to live? Can sin now just continue to be a regular part of my life once I'm in Christ? I mean, if his love is that amazing, wouldn't it just cover me anyway? And he comes back and he says, not so fast. 
That could never be possible in the heart, in the life of the one who is in Christ. Here's why. Because very literally in Paul's mind, he believes that we have died to sin. Now, that argument in in this passage for Paul, uh, it does its job very well. But what we need to understand is that it does so much more. This whole series, guys, is about you understanding what the truth is about you. How do you walk out this life? How do you deal now as a Christian with your sin? How am I, how am I to view my sin? How am I to view my everyday walking around when I stumble? How, what should I think about that? What should I think about me? This is what we're trying to answer. Are we walking around out here with split personalities? Sinner man and saint man? What's the truth about us? That's what we're trying to find. What God wants us to know about ourselves is that we are dead to sin. Now, um, I, I want to I say a few things. Uh, I want to point out three things that this passage does not say. Okay? And you may want to jot these down because they're going to help you to understand what it means to be dead to sin. Number one, this passage does not say that sin is dead. Think about the difference now. What we're saying this morning is that we are dead to sin. This passage does not say that sin is dead. Now, that's an important distinction. Because it's one thing to say that I have died to it. That I have been released from it. That the legal obligation that I had to it under my sinful condition, under my old nature, from my old lineage, from my old heritage, the first Adam... I legally was was in sin. It it had legal right over me, so to speak. It's different than saying that that legal right has been broken. I am dead to sin. When we say that sin is not dead, then what we're saying is that sin, in a sense, is alive and well. And it is continuing to wreak havoc in our world. And it continues to try to wreak havoc, Christian, in your world. Now, I hope that that simple, that simple statement, those changing of words, help you. Because maybe you've been, you've been walking around in your, on your Monday through Saturday saying, you know, I know all this good stuff that, that pastor's been saying about us and we're loved and we're saints, etc. But man, I, I really struggle out here in the day-to-day life. I mean, I wonder... I wonder if he knows, or more importantly, I wonder if Scripture knows, and, and I wonder then if God knows anything about this, this struggle that I'm, that I'm having, the struggle that I have with sin. It's important for you to know the difference between saying that you have died to sin, that your legal obligation, your legal bondage, that it is no longer master over you, that is done. You are dead to that. But there's a difference when we say that sin is not dead. It is alive and well. Now that explains some things, I hope. And it leaves some question marks that we'll get to in coming weeks. Romans 5.12, if you want to look back, says this. Maybe this helps you. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world. Who would that one man be? Adam. And then through that one man and through that sin, death comes. 
And now death has spread to all men because all have sinned. Sin is there. Sin is alive and well from the moment of the fall in the garden. And it will continue. In Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, nowhere does Paul say that sin has died. But you are dead to sin. Look at verses 10 and 11 in chapter 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. That's what it means to be dead to sin, that it has no mastery over you. It is not your boss. You are not bound to obey it any longer. Its authority has been broken over you. Before you were in Christ, sin had authority over your life due to the fall. Through the fall came sin, through sin came death to all men. And it was fleshed out in that all men sinned and proved that theory right. And so you were bound alive, in a sense, to sin. That sin was your master. But now in Christ, you need to understand that we are dead to sin. Although sin itself continues on alive and well. But it's no longer master over you. It no longer has authority over you. Now, I'll give you a sneak peek into coming weeks. Do we still give it authority? We sometimes do. Do we still grant sin authority that it has no longer legal right to? We sure do. We sure do. We've got to come to grips with the difference. If we're going to walk this thing out, if we're going to teach our children as they grow and they start to try and figure out why is there such this struggle that Paul's going to put into words in Romans 7, by the way? What do I do with this? You have to, parents, be able to explain to them the difference between being dead to sin and yet sin is still alive. Verse 11, chapter 6, Even so, consider yourselves to be what? Dead to sin. Verse 10, for the death that he died, that's Christ. Christ died to sin. That is the truth. Now you have to figure out, and we will together in the next couple of weeks figure out, how do we flesh that out? How do we bring that truth online in our heart and in our mind so that it has no mastery over us? The lie, uh, I don't know if you've caught this in this series, we essentially have been battling the deception of our adversary through this series. He would like to tell you that you're not loved by God. He would like to tell you that you're not a saint. You are still a sinner, Christian. He would like to tell you that you're not secure. And he would like to tell you that you are not dead to sin, that it is still master in your life. We are combating the lies of the devil here. And you have to figure out what the truth is and walk in that truth. Now, nowhere in this passage or anywhere in 6, 7, or 8 of Romans does Paul say that sin, is still, uh, that sin has been killed off. Sin is still alive. You need to know that. Number two, I want you to know that this passage, this passage nowhere uses sin as a verb. Nowhere in this passage is sin used as a verb. And in much of Paul's argument, sin is not used as a verb. In the majority of Paul's argument, sin is used as a noun. Kids, 
Can you give us the definition of a noun? What is a noun? Q, what's a noun? A person, place, or thing. Paul is not referring to your sins in this passage. All right? He's not talking about the specifics of how you sin. As you read chapter 6, 1 through 11, he's not talking about your bad attitude. He's not talking about how, how you, you let, your, you, you let your, uh, your temper get out of control. He's not, he's not talking about those sinful acts. He's not talking about sin as a verb. He's talking about sin as a noun. And that's an important distinction. It is either a person, a place, or a thing. I would stand short of saying that sin is a person, although we could say there is a person behind sin. I wouldn't say that it is a place. That's clear. It'd be pretty apt to say that it is a thing. It's not simply an activity in Scripture. Most often when we think about sin, we think about that thing we did. We think about that that way we fell short. But you have to come to grips, Christians, with the understanding in Scripture that sin is often referred to as a thing. It's almost as if it's personified. If you have your Bible, turn back to Genesis chapter 4. I want to show you something here. In Genesis chapter 4, we get the story of Cain and Abel. Kids, do you remember this story? You've probably, you've probably heard it at some point. One of them was, in a sense, the bad guy. One of them was the good guy, right? They were brothers, though. And God finds that Cain... His heart is not right, and uh, he is against his brother. Chapter 4, verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said, verse 6 to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Now, here's the key verse. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, if you follow in obedience or if you do not follow in obedience, watch this. Look at what he says. If you do not do well, sin. Now, that's not a verb. That's a noun. It's a thing. It is uh, an entity, if you will. Sin is, now look at the way he pictures it. It is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. What's the picture here? Something, this thing crouching at the door, waiting to consume you. It's a picture of a lion or maybe a tiger, isn't it? It's this wild beast just waiting to pounce. Let me make something else clear here. When he says in verse 7, Sin is crouching at the door. It's as if he's personifying it. Here into the figure of, of a beast or an animal. But you, it gets personal qualities, doesn't it? But watch this. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Now, my translation says it's. A better translation would say that his desire is for you. Sin is crouching at your door and literally his desire is for you. Do you get do you get the difference here? When we talk about sin, we're not just talking about the things you do wrong. We're talking about a thing. We're talking about a force. We're talking about a power. We're talking about that thing that was passed down to us from Adam now into our life throughout the ages. And we have to deal with it. Sin is not dead. 
It is alive and well. And it is not just a verb in Scripture. It is very often a noun. It is a thing to be reckoned with. It is a power. And at one point it had authority over you. But we are dead to sin. We're dead to sin. That's a noun. Sin. Okay. More question marks should be coming into your mind and we'll get to those in the coming weeks. Let me tell you one more thing that this passage does not communicate to us. This passage, nor especially as we get to uh, Romans chapter 7, would not have us to believe that we are in some sort of inner civil war. Now, many of us, we, we struggle with this idea that when we are walking out our Christian life, it's this inner battle. I remember when I first got saved, uh, my pastor uh, in the 11th grade, he was, he was preaching. And I remember this illustration because it so resonated with me and I, I, and I thought it was applicable to me. But I found out that it's a little off. He used this illustration of an old Indian man trying to, des- uh, trying to describe what this battle is like going in inside of us. And he said there was this old Indian man in the fire and he had had this dream of this, this giant white dog and this giant black dog. And they would, they would uh, lunge at one another. And at one point, the black dog would win. And at another point, the white dog would win. And he was using this dream to make a point about this inner war that goes, in, goes on inside of us. And the preacher asked this Indian, so, so what's, what's the point of the story? Which dog, which one wins in your dream? And the Indian says, whichever one I say sick him to is the one that wins. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's, man, that, that seems to make sense. You know, in my, in, in, in my innermost man, there seems to be this, this war going on inside of me. And it seems like there's this, there's this one uh, enemy going against this other opponent and they're just battling against one another. And, and I seem to be at the center controlling both of these guys. And whichever one I say sick them to is the one that's going to win that day. And that, that attempted to answer what it is that goes on inside of us, but it falls short. Here's why. The Bible does not say that there is an inner civil war. You know what I mean by saying a civil war? That, that we're in the same nation, but we're warring against each other. That's what a civil war is. There is no civil war, Christian, going on in your heart. This is so important. For so long, and even today, I continue to try and fall back into thinking that my old man is still alive, and now he's battling with the new man that Christ has made in me. And whichever one wins, well, it's the guy that I say sick him to. The saint part of me or the sinner part of me. And whenever I say sick him to the sinner part of me, then I, then I let him win over the saint part of me. And now I believe that I'm walking out the rest of my days in Christ, but still in my old nature. And now I have two natures, my old nature and my new nature. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to walk this fine line and not fall over to the old nature me, but be the new nature me. And it's all up to me which one I'm going to say sick him to on a day-to-day basis. And what a struggle that is. But that's not what Scripture would say. Scripture says that we are dead to sin. We have been crucified with Christ. How many times did we, he say we have, we have died? I mean, he would have got an F for redundancy here in English class. He would have you to know that your old man has not been resurrected. 
your old mans didn't somehow climb off the cross when you were crucified with Christ. And now somehow he has survived and he's tagging along into your new life. Do you see the difference? But very often, if, if we don't put the pieces of Scripture together, we, we think that the old man is still alive and well. He's not. The old man has, has been killed off. He was on the cross with Christ. He never climbed off. Then what, what is this battle then? That should be the question in your mind. What is this battle then? What, if it's not an inner civil war, who am I warring against? Well, your fight is against sin that crouches at your door waiting to consume you. Its desire is for you. Do you know that? And it's alive and well. And it'll use first person pronouns planted in your, in your thought life to tell you that you are something other than what God says you are. And so when you are tempted to have that bitter attitude, your thinking is this. I can't believe they did that. Uh, They're just low down, sorry. Um, I am so much better at this job than they are. Wh- whatever the sinful thinking is in you. And it comes with first person pronouns. I, I, I. The truth is that those are sin's thoughts. Paul's going to say that he finds this battle inside of him in chapter 7. More questions you should be adding. Today, here's the groundwork for the coming weeks. You are dead to sin. You have to figure out what that means. If you're going to walk this life, if you're going to raise your children to live a victorious Christian life and not have the split personality that their old man and new man are still battling it out. You've got to understand what it means to be dead to sin. You've got to figure out what it means that sin is not dead. You've got to understand that sin is very often in Scripture a noun. It is a thing. It is a wild, ravenous, powerful thing. And yet you are dead to it and it no longer has control over you. It no longer is master over you. You've got to understand that you are not fighting a civil war. Are you fighting a battle? You sure are. You sure are. But your opponent, your opponent is not yourself. It's not your old you against your new you. You now fight against sin. That thing that is crouching at the door, waiting at any moment it can to devour you, to convince you that you are something other than what God says you are right now. You battle it with truth. Um, you can't win a war if you can't locate the enemy. Think about it. You can't win a war if you can't locate the enemy. And Satan, through this whole series, has been trying to convince us of the lie. We've been trying to correct it with the truth about ourselves. Satan would have us to believe that our enemy is ourselves, that we're still this split personality of old man and new man, and, and whichever one we say sick him to is the one that gets to win that day. He would have us be misdirected. He would have us be misguided. He would have us to have our focus on the wrong opponent. Our opponent is sin. If we don't know who the enemy is, if we don't clearly understand what this fight is about and who it is against, then we can never, we can never be victorious. Now listen, uh, I read this story. It's amazing how the older you get, uh, you start to like history more. 
When I was young, I hated history class. I didn't know why they made us memorize all these old dates and old facts and old guys who did this old stuff. It was just so boring. And, and, I, and I would memorize it just for the moment and then I'd forget it. But now I find myself like watching the History Channel and doing things that my dad does. And now I watch these old black and white war movies and like, you know, I just like zone out. And I love it. I, I, I love it. And uh, I was reading this bit of history the other day about World War II. And, and I had never heard this, partially because I didn't listen in most of my history classes. <laughs> but I had never heard this. And I, at first I thought, that's not true. I thought it was, I thought it was a joke. But then I, I, I looked it up and, uh, and it turns out to be accurate. Then in World War II, um, tanks and uh, weaponry, it was expensive as it is always. Uh, but somebody got smart and they decided that they were going to fake it. In order to throw off the enemy, they started building, check this out, kids, they started building tanks out of balloons. And they set these, they were kind of like, uh, like blow-up jumpies are now, okay? They would, they would blow up these inflatable deals. When they were deflated, they were like just a duffel bag size, like your backpack. But they would blow them up to like a tank size. And they would build them these, these blow-up jumpy things in the shape of a tank. And they would paint them all so that from a distance it looked like a tank. And now when the enemy would fly over and they would, they would take pictures from above, which they did some other cool things that made them fly higher so they couldn't get a really good look. They made the enemy fly higher. And from, from that distance, it looked like now they've got a massive army when in truth it may be 500 blow-up jumpy tanks. And what they accomplished in that was, was misdirecting the enemy misdirecting their opponent, deceiving their opponent. Their opponent thought, there's the enemy. They're over here. But guess what? The real enemy was over here. The tanks that really moved and really shot and were really dangerous. They're over here. Uh, this continued as I read into, uh, into future wars. Uh, I even read that the United States has their own version of tank blow-up jumpy things. And they cost about $3,000, but that's a lot better than the, uh, I don't know, what is it, $75,000 at a tank cost? I don't know. Probably more than that. $7.5 million, something like that. Here's the point. Um, Satan has his own slick tactics to have us focus in the wrong place, folks. And if we go back out in there uh, to our daily life and we think that we're fighting this inner civil war, we think that sin is long gone and dead. Well, then we've been deceived. If we think that the enemy is over here, if that the enemy is within ourselves, that I've just got to buckle down and I've got to try harder, that I've got, it's, it's part of my will that I've got to overcome my old sinful nature. Now that I'm in Christ, I've still got to overcome as best I can. I've got to buckle down and overcome my old sinful nature. Then guess what? We, we've fallen for the wrong enemy because that's not the truth of us in Christ. The old man has passed away. We have been raised to walk in the newness of life. There is a war going on. Let's make sure in the next couple of weeks we figure out who it is we're actually fighting. I want you to pray with me and uh, we're going to close. And as, uh, as I pray, I want to bring, uh, bring D up. Come on up, D. 
Many of you know Dee Pezzarezzi has been serving as our uh, women's director for the last couple of years, uh, just done an excellent job. Uh, you know this not because of any programs or meetings or organizations that Dee has put together or any of that, not because of the heart-to-heart or any of the actual stuff we do. You know and you're thankful for Dee Pezzarezzi being part of our women's ministry because she's been like a sister or a mom to so many of you. And at the very least, she's been a great friend to many of you. She's been a, a counselor to many of you um, for a long time. And so uh, Dee is decided to step down as our women's ministry director. She has some other ministries that she, that she wants to put her time into, and, uh, and it's just not going to work to be able to do both at this time. And so uh, I, just couldn't, I just couldn't let that be a bulletin announcement and then you know, not thank her. Uh, part of having her come up here is to communicate this fact because now we've got to we've got to reorganize and maybe build a women's ministry leadership team uh, so that our women's ministry can continue on and we've got we've got some things in the works and that's planned. Uh, that's a small part of why I wanted to bring her up and tell you all of this so that you can, from a communication standpoint, know what we're doing. But more so, I, I just couldn't let this be uh, a transition without me saying. Uh, in front of you to her, thank you, Dee, for for uh, for not just being a friend, uh, a sister, and a mom, but a wise counselor to our church. She will continue to do all of those things. By the way, okay, she's not going anywhere. That doesn't mean anything. But in an official capacity, uh, she's just got to put her focus in another way. But she will continue, and I have challenged her. And I want to say this in front of all of you: I've challenged her to continue to be the person and the leader that God has called her to be as a part of this body in Christ. Kids, you remember in fit class this morning, we had the, the church and all the people and we cut up the different pieces and we had a missing piece. And if, and if somebody doesn't do their job, then we, we lack in the church, right? And so if D doesn't fulfill her God-given part in the church, then, then we'll miss that. I will miss that. And so I challenge her to continue to find ways to be that sister and friend and mother and, and counselor in this church. And, and she has that freedom and uh, my blessing to do that. Uh, it will not be in the official role, but, but that makes, in my mind, little little difference at this point. All right. And so we'll find a way to move forward in women's ministry. And we've got the, the, the coat drive and there's an event planned for next month, I think, through the coat drive and, and some other things coming. So just continue to watch your bulletin and we'll inform you about that. But as we close, I'm going to pray and I'm going to thank God for, uh, for the truth in Scripture about us and also for the work Dee has done in our women's ministry. Will you pray with me? Father God, we, uh, we love you for the truth that you give us and the freedom that comes in truth. Very often, um, the truth is hidden from us. For various reasons, the truth gets hidden from us. It's not always just because um, of knowledge and uh, Dee has helped me to know that. I thank you for that. Very often it is the condition of our heart. Very often it is the baggage we carry into our relationship with you, Jesus. Uh, very often, however, Satan is, is deceiving us, is having us to believe a lie that is simply not true. And so, Lord, I, I ask you to, uh, to let truth reign in this place. Let the truth of your love, let the truth of your mercy, let the truth of your compassion towards us as your sons and daughters. Let it reign in this place. We give authority to the truth. And Father, I rebuke the, uh, the lies that come from the adversary planted through our flesh into our hearts and minds. Lord, give us the mind of Christ. 
Help us to recognize truth and to conform our lives to what truth is. But we need you, God. We need you. And, and sometimes it seems confusing and complicated. But Lord, would you, would you help us, your sons and daughters, to understand spiritual truth, to understand these spiritual things, these spiritual battles that are going on so that we'll know who the enemy is. I thank you for the role Dee plays here at our church and the role she will continue to play and uh, for the friend, the sister and mother and, uh, and counselor she's been to me and will continue to be. I thank you for each part of this body and the role that they play. Lord, help us all to know that when a piece is missing, then the, then the whole body is lacking. We need each foot, each hand, each elbow, each ear, each eye. Father, we need every piece. And so, Lord, would you draw us together as a body and as a family and plant our feet firmly upon the truth that comes through your word. In Jesus' name, who is our cornerstone, amen, amen. We are dismissed. You have a great week. And make sure you bless the Lord.